Okay. So this week's Parsha is Parsha's the Eschanon. And also, besides being Parsha's the Eschanon, it's called Shabbos Nachamu. And the simple reason why it's called Shabbos Nachamu is because of the opening words of the Haftorah, where God tells the prophet Isaiah, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, go, console, console my people. And with this starts a series that we refer to as seven consolences. The next seven Haftorahs taking us from the Shabbat after Tisha B'Av until the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah is called the seven consolences. The three that's, that was prior, the ones that took us from the siege on Jerusalem, the 17th of Tammuz, until the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av, those are called the three Puronios, the three calamities, the Haftorah, where we're being forewarned. But now we're going into the series that are the seven consolences. Now, a little bit just to go over the Torah portion, and we're going to point out, of course, the two highlights. The two highlights in this week's Torah portion is A, being that Moses is recapping everything that took place in the last 40 years. So in this week's Torah portion, Moses recaps the experience with the Ten Commandments, and we read the Ten Commandments. And we're going to talk about some very interesting things about the Ten Commandments in a moment. However, and then after that, Moses also gives us the Shema Yisrael, the, the portion of Shema Yisrael, the first portion, the Shema as we know it is made up of three portions. The first one is the Shema, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. The second one is Vahoyim Shemoya. And the third one comes from previous portion, which is about remembering, remembering the exodus from Egypt and the commandment of the tzitzis. So in this week's Torah portion, the two primary highlights, if we're to call it that, as highlights in the Parsha, Obviously, every verse is a highlight. But um, in general, we talk about the highlights being the Ten Commandments and the, and the Shema Israel. But we're going to talk about those in a moment. Let's first start from the beginning. So the opening word of this week's Torah portion is Ve'eschanon. And Ve'eschanon means to pray. Rashi tells us that the Ve'eschanon means to pray for grace. Grace means that Moshe Rabbeinu, after everything he did and self-sacrificed and being who God eulogizes as Eved Hashem, the servant of God, and nevertheless Moses falls back on none of his chuyot, none of his merits, but rather he asks for grace. Matnas chinam. Hashem, I deserve nothing. I, I beseech of your compassion. Now, what did he pray for? He prayed to be able to enter into the land of Israel. Now, even though God clearly stated that he will not be going into Israel, but nevertheless, being that God let him capture that which was on the east side of the Jordan, which in most aspects has the law of Israel, which he gave to the two and a half tribes, 
So he was wondering if this was an opening that God's telling him, if you pray, you will be granted. And thus he prayed. What is amazing is that our sages tell us that the prayer that Moses did, if you look up the numerical value of Eschanon, it's 515. And our sages tell us that Moses prayed 515 prayers. We're going to soon talk about the mystical um, insight to what's 515. However, what I want to share with you is the famous teaching of our sages that God asked Moses to stop praying. And our sages tell us that God told Moses, if you pray one more prayer to go into the land of Israel, then I will grant you your prayer. So I'm asking you, please don't do that one more prayer. And, and there's the teaching that God told Moses, how will it look? that you left your generation in the desert buried and you go into the land of Israel. And then when Mashiach comes and there's going to be the resurrection, they're going to see that you left them behind. It would be best if you stay with your generation and you'll enter into Israel when Mashiach comes and there's going to be the resurrection and let Joshua take his generation into the land of Israel. Now, I just want to give you a little bit, just briefly, quickly, some mystical insights. So, there are seven emotions. The Zohar says that when it says that God created the world in six days, seven days it says, so the Zohar says that these are supernal days. And what are supernal days? Those are the seven emotion emanations that we speak about. So from the 10 emanations, there's three intellects, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And then there's the seven emotions, which it, it translates a little differently in human language. But in the Kabbalistic terminology of the, of the emanations, as they exist uh, as a transformer filter system through which the infinite light shines to sustain the finite world, you have kindness, you have strength, you have splendor, you have um, you have victory, you have hoid, which is gratitude, you have yesoid, um, which is foundation, and you have malchut, which is kingship. Now, of those, we talk about the first five being the primary, because foundation and kingship in the world of Kabbalah is not about the emanations themselves, but the way they transfer. Foundation gives it over to kingship, which brings it into the lower world. Thus in Kabbalah, when you talk about the primary emotions, you talk about five instead of seven. Take it one step further. These seven emotion emanations exist on three planes. They exist within the realm of emotions in which there are emotions in the heart. They exist as emotions of the intellects, which means that once you have the disconnected intellect, you then start having an inclination of how to rule and the verdict, whether this is good or bad, 
something that you're attracted to, something that you're afraid of. So within intellect itself, there's the emotions of the intellect. And then higher than that, there is the emotions of the supernal crown, the Keter Elyon, which we refer to as the infinite will. Why am I sharing all of this with you? Because according to Kabbalah, when we talk about emotions on the emotion level, they're single digits. When we talk about emotion on the intellectual level, they work in tens. And when we talk about the emotions on the supernal crown, the infinite will level, they work on hundreds. Thus, for example, it says the life of man is 70. We're talking about seven times 10. Now, with that being said, 500 are the primary five emotion emanations, the way they exist in the supernal crown. 15, we are taught in Kabbalah that every single one of these emanations divide into three, which is called Roish, Toich, Saf. There's the head in which the emanation receives from that above it. There is the Toich, the center, which, which is it itself. And then there is the Soif, the way it gives over to the next level. Thus you have 500, thus you have five, uh, 15. So you have 515 prayers. One more level, one more prayer, Moses would have surpassed that. And once he surpassed the five main emotion emanations, the way they are divided in three, and the way they exist in the supernal crown of hundreds, that would have reached a level in which God would have granted him his prayer. And thus God asked him, please stop praying. Don't take it to the next level because it's best that you do not enter into Israel. Now I gave you one insight into why Moses shouldn't enter into Israel. I'm going to give you another insight which is connected directly to tomorrow night, Thursday, Tisha B'Av. You will remember when the Jewish people, they created the golden calf, God told Moses, leave me alone, I am going to annihilate them and I'll start over from you. And God told Moses, to forgive the Jewish people, he prayed, to the point where he said, and if not, erase me from your holy Torah. Now, there is a rule, and the rule is that that which was caused by the sin is going to manifest itself in some form or fashion. Excuse me. And thus our sages tell us that God manifested his anger on stones and mortar, meaning that he burnt down the holy temple rather than upon the people. So God redirected his anger. Now here, an amazing shot, I believe it's from the Kliyokar, and he explains like this. He says that we know that the Talmud tells us in Tractic Sota that because of Moses, absolute transparency to Hashem. Thus, anything Moses would do 
would never be destroyed. The language of the Talmud is Maisa Moisha The works of Moses are eternal. And thus the tabernacle that was built by Moses was never destroyed. It was never captured. It was hidden when they started building the temple. Now, follow the thought. If Moses would have gone into Israel and he would have built a holy temple, thus the holy temple would have been eternal. Thus God couldn't redirect his anger and wrath at stones and mortar. Thus he would have to have it land on the people itself. Thus Moses, God told Moses, according to the Kliyakar, he says, you're praying for two things. You're praying for me not to annihilate the people, and you're praying for me to let you into the Israel. I can't give you both because one negates the other. If I let you into Israel, then the holy temple must be eternal, and thus I won't be able to redirect my wrath, so I will not be able to fulfill your prayer not to annihilate the people. Thus, you pick which prayer you want me to answer yes to and which you're willing to give up. And of course, Moses right away tells God, keep me out of Israel and don't annihilate ever the Jewish people. That's a beautiful insight that connects this Be'etchanan with the story of Tisha B'Av. But what God did tell Moses is that even though you cannot go into Israel, it's important that your eyes see Israel. And we have the famous teaching that the sight of a tzaddik, of a holy, saintly, righteous man, gives impact. You'll probably notice that if someone's staring at you from behind, you feel it. And from here, Kabbalah learns that sight is not only about receiving, but sight also has the power of giving. And thus Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, I want you to look, imbue the land of Israel with the power of your sight. And through that, there will be at least the eternalism that once it becomes the land of Israel, it will always be the land of Israel to be returned to the Jewish people. Now, Moses is then told, but you must go ahead and tell Joshua and empower Joshua and encourage Joshua that he should be strong and he will bring the people into the land of Israel and he will conquer it, inherit it for the Jewish people. Then Moses goes on to go ahead and start recounting all the stories, how God gave them the mitzvot, and he tells them that I'm not going with you into the land of Israel, and you should know and you are connected, you're cleaved to God, your God, the living God today. However, be careful. Be careful lest you end up going after following the ways of the nations that you will encounter once you leave the desert, leave the clouds of glory, 
into the land of Israel. And Moses goes over the fundaments of the faith and he tells them, remember, you saw with your own eyes, you heard with your own ears, you received the word of God and you saw, and you saw that God has no form or shape. Do not make any forms or shapes to go ahead and serve as idolatry. And then he goes on and forewarns us that you should know. And by the way, this is the Torah portion that we read on Tisha B'Av, just following the, the simple chronological order. You can't have a Torah portion for Tisha B'Av because Tisha B'Av happened generations after the Torah was already made. The temple, the first temple itself, stood for 405 years. It was first built by King Solomon, which was way, way, way after Moses already completed the Torah. Nevertheless, everything is hinted in the Torah, and thus we read from this week's Torah portion on Tisha B'Av, where Moses forewarns us, and it will be that you will give birth to children, and they will walk away from the ways, and they will start idol worship, and you should know that you will be banished from the land, and from there you will call out to God with all your heart and all your soul to be brought back, and God is a compassionate God, and he's warning us, don't test God. Don't test God, follow in his ways. And then he goes on to tell us again, heed, heed the commandments, so that you may have long days upon the land of Israel. Now, just to understand, the land of Israel, I just want to give you a metaphor because we find the language in the Torah in which God says, the Torah says, Kisaki, the land will regurgitate you, vomit you out. And what is the deeper meaning behind that? And the answer is that because the land of Israel is considered the capital and the holy temple is the house of God, thus the level of tolerance that the land of Israel, which is saturated and permeated with the holiness of God, the level of tolerance it has for evil is low. And the example given is that you and I, we're used to eating barbecues and all the rough food, and we eat the fast food chazarai, and the drive-throughs and the takeouts, of course, all kosher, but it's not healthy. So our stomach has lost its sensitivity. Now imagine you would take a princess from the palace that grew up on only the finest dishes prepared on the day to eat. And imagine she decides to go ahead and get herself two falafels, uh, two slices of pizza, and a Diet Coke. Imagine what's going to happen to her stomach. It's going to regurgitate it. Not, it's going to vomit it out. Not as a punishment, but just because that stomach is not used to that type of unhealthiness. So too the land of Israel is like that stomach of the princess. It can't tolerate it. And thus we are kicked out of the land, not just as a punishment, but simply as a biological, so to speak, effect of Israel 
being forced to digest sins. Now, another thing we're taught is that remember we learned in, the, in two Torah portions ago that God commanded Moses that there should be cities of absorption, six cities, three on the west, on the east side of the Jordan, and then later three on the west side. Because Moses wouldn't cross the Jordan, he would never be able to be the one to set, to establish the three on the west side of the Jordan. On top of that, I want you to know that the law is that the three on the east of the Jordan will not function until this three on the west side of the of the um, Jordan is established. Thus, you would think Moses would say to himself, well, listen, obviously this mitzvah belongs to Joshua, not to me, because whatever I'm going to do is only half, and even that half won't function until the other half is made. So the Torah teaches us a very important lesson. Moses said, listen, I'm going to do whatever it is possible for me to do. And as our sages say, it's not upon you to finish the job. Your job is to do as much as the job that God gives you the opportunity to do. That is our job, not you, our job. And that's why Moses established these cities of absorption, even though he knew that he would not be able to finish it. And even that which he is doing isn't going to function. Nevertheless, you have an opportunity to start a mitzvah, start it, and then let the rest play itself out. Now from here, Moses goes ahead and reviews the laws of the Torah, and Moses keeps on telling them that the majority of the mitzvahs is going to take place owning the land of Israel out of 613 mitzvahs. I think there's only 210, 15, 17, the number eludes me right now, but it's one of those that applies outside of Israel. That's all we have today. So majority of the mitzvahs that Moshe Rabbeinu is telling them, here it's going to happen for you. You are going to have the opportunity to really embrace the entire 613 commandments in the land and don't let go of it. And then he goes ahead and he tells them, remember how God spoke face to face with each and every one of you. And then he starts the 10 commandments. He repeats the 10 commandments. Now, I want to share with you that there are, unbelievable, there are 13, 13 discrepancies between the Ten Commandments, the way they are documented in the book of Exodus, and the way they are documented here in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to give you some of the classical ones, okay? Number one, when it comes to Shabbat, in the Exodus, it says, remember Shabbat. And over here, it says, heed Shabbat. Number two, when it gives you the reason why you should keep Shabbat, in Exodus, it talks about because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. And over here, he talks about, remember, because you were a slave in Egypt, and therefore, you should keep the Shabbat. Number, two, uh, number three, I'm just giving you some quick ones. When it talks about honor your father and mother, so over there it says, in order that you have lengthy days, over here it says, in order that you have lengthy days and that it be good for you, something you don't have over there in Exodus. Another difference, when it says you should not give beer false testimony, in Exodus it used the word eid sheker. Sheker means a lie. 
over here it uses the word eight shove. A different wording. Another difference. In the 10th commandment, in Exodus it says first, do not, do not uh, covet, do not be jealous of your friend's house, field that lists everything, and then it says wife. Over here, first it says, do not covet your friend's wife, and then it lists the other things. And then a final difference I'm just gonna share with you, over there it uses the same word for covet twice, by the wife and by the rest of the possessions. It uses the word sachmoid. Over here, when it comes to the wife, it says sachmoid, and when it comes to the rest of the possessions, it says sisave. And there are huge questions of what is going on here. It is the same 10 commandments. How can there be different verbiage? So some say, some say that on the first two tablets was engraved the language used in Exodus, which was broken. And on the second tablets was, it, was engraved the, the language of Deuteronomy. And that's what remained. Now, there is different opinions. What, how, what's going on here? What did God say? And, and, and really, just, just, you have to look into the commentaries. What happens? Did God say both? Or did God only say one? And Moses in Deuteronomy, because Deuteronomy has a specific job, thus Moses is changing the wording. And how would he do that? How could he do that? Um, uh, then there's, there's a thought that I was having. And uh, I'm just going to share with you a thought. Our sages tell us that the Jews received the Ten Commandments in the fashion of klal uprat. Klal means one, all-encompassing, all-inclusive, and then ten particulars. According to that teaching, it clearly says that God first gave all the Ten Commandments in one all-inclusive commandment. All of them came out in one shot, something which is impossible for the mouth of a human to do, nor the ears of a human to hear. And then he went on to particular, each one. He first said, number one. Number two, the Jews came running to Moses, says, you got to stop. We can't do with this. We can't deal with this. It's too great for us. Let God tell the next eight to you and you give it to us. Thus, according to this, God gave the Ten Commandments twice, once in the all-inclusive um, one, Dibur, and then again in ten Diburs. Maybe that can be understood as a double language. By the way, this also happened in creation. As you remember, in Ethics of Our Fathers, the Mishnah says, could God not have done the Torah in the world, created the world in one utterances? Why one utterance? Why did he create it in 10 utterances? And Kabbalah says that actually when the Mishnah suggests that, it's actually saying that's what did happen. There was the one all-inclusive utterance, and then there was the 10 particular utterances. Again, in the format of a cloud, an all-inclusive generality, and then prat, particulars. And Kabbalah has this huge explanation why, why was the infinite light um, uh, turned into creation in that double format. But that being said, I just wanted to point this out. It is, 
it is marvelous to realize that the Ten Commandments are documented twice and there are differences, differences in the words of the way it's documented the first time and the way it's documented the second time. Okay, we go on further and Moses tells the story of how the Jewish people came running to him and said to him, please let God talk to you and you talk to us. We are dying at every utterance and, and simply just think of it as electric. Go shoot, you know, 220 watts into a 110 appliance. You're going to short circuit it. And that's what was happening to the Jewish people. And they told Moses, you have the capacity. Let God talk to you and you talk to us. Moses actually didn't want that. Moses knew that if the Jews can hold out and hear everything from God, the awe of God, Yirat Hashem, the fear of heaven, will forever be implanted within them. And nevertheless, God agreed with the Jewish people and said, tell them to go back to their tents. God gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to us. And then we get into the Shema Yisrael. And here too, I have to share with you an interesting detail. If you look at the way we say Shema Yisrael, right? First, we go ahead and we say the verse, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem, Echad, Hero, Israel. God is our God. God is one. The way we say it is, then we very quietly, unless it's Yom Kippur, we say it loudly. We say, Baruch Shem Kibod Machutolo Lamba Ed, blessed is your name of glory and sovereignty forever and ever. Now, if then we go on to the commandment of the Shema, which is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and study the Torah, but I'm filling have mezuzot. Now, if you look in the Torah, that quiet sentence does not exist. We go straight from the Shema Yisrael to the Hafta. And by the way, the Talmud tells us that Anche Yericho, the people of Jericho, actually did not say the Baruch Shem. They said it the way it said in the Torah, and it says that the sages were very unhappy with them. And I'm going to share with you the Kabbalah behind this too. However, first I want to share with you the two traditions we have. Where did that second verse come from? Maimonides tells us an amazing story. At the end of Genesis, you find something very peculiar. Jacob tells his children, gather and I will tell you what will happen in the end of days. And all of a sudden, he completely drops that topic and goes to blessing. First he rebukes and then he blesses his children. And our sages say, what happened? He said he was going to do something. Why did he get off track? And it says because he realized the minute he tried to do that, the divine presence which gave him that power of prophecy, I'm not going to call it prophecy, but whatever it is, that power of knowledge of what's going to happen in the end of days, in the times of Mashiach, and, that, and to be able to transmit that to his children was taken away from him. I'll just share with you, if it wouldn't have been taken away, if it wouldn't have been taken away from him, we would have already known that right before Mashiach comes, there's got to be a COVID-19. But we didn't know that. We have to live through it and find out as it's happening. But nevertheless, let's go on. So Jacob turned around to his children and said, why? Why was the divine 
presence lifted from me, stopping me from sharing this with, with you. And thus he asked them, is it because you have turned astray? Is it because that you are no more monotheistic and you don't believe no more in one God? Now watch what the words happen here according to Maimonides. They said, they're answering their father who just questioned whether they still believe in only one God and whether they are faithful to only one God. And the children answered, Shema here. Yisrael, what was Jacob's second name? Israel. It was Jacob and it was Israel. So they're talking to their father. Hear, O Israel, Hashem Elokeinu. Only God is our God. Your God is our God. Hashem Echad, there is only one God. When Jacob heard this, he immediately responded with, Blessed be the name of glory of God. He was thanking God that his family was whole and faithful. That is one tradition in how we have the Baruch Shem. Another tradition is that when Moses went up to heaven for the 40 days and 40 nights, and he heard how the angels praised God, and he heard them responding. The angels don't respond just with Amen, like we do. They say, Baruch Shem Kibod Machutolo Olam Ba'ed, blessed be your name, glory, sovereignty forever and ever. Thus Moses came and taught it to the Jewish people. However, because this is an angelic prayer, thus he taught us to say it quietly. Now, the only time of a year where we are angelic, and what do I mean that we are angelic? So our sages tell us that we are in three ways compared to an animal, and in three ways we're compared to an angel. And our animalistic side is obviously the eating, the way we reproduce, the way we um, consummate. And I don't remember what the third one is. But the other three, the spirituality is like angels. Now, on Tisha B'Av, we're not allowed to eat, we're not allowed to drink, we're not allowed to have marital relationships, and thus we're dressed in our white robe as angels. Thus, because on that day we are angelic, that is the one day that we say loud in shul after the Shema, that's why we do it then. So now you know why it's not in the Torah and how it got to us. Now, after that, Again, again, Mo, um, Moses keeps on warning the Jewish people, don't forget God. Don't forget the commandment. You're going into a different type of, land, of life now. You're going into a physical life. Six days a week, you're going to walk, work and work and work and be exhausted. And on the seventh day, you're going to be completely exhausted on your spiritual day. And you're going to feel spiritually weakened. Remember to remain faithful. Remember that we don't sleep on Shabbat, so we have strength to go to the office on Monday, but rather we work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so that we should be able to have and afford and spend Shabbat with our family and in shul. And he keeps on warning them. And when you go into the land and you're going to find your idols, don't allow it to remain. You have to destroy the idols so that it will not be to take you out of the way.
Okay, this is the Torah portion. I shared with you about the secrets of the 515 prayers, and I shared with you the Kliyokar on how God told him, pick your prayer, and how that's connected with Tisha B'Av, that God mercifully redirected his anger on his home rather than on his children. And therefore, I want to share with you now some mystical insight to the Shema Yisrael. So I shared with you that the people of Jericho, Anche Yericho, did not say Baruch Shem. They went straight from the Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, God is our God, directly into the commandment of loving God your God. And the sages were unhappy with this, and they felt that it is imperative that between the Shema Yisrael, the hero Israel, and between the commandment of love God your God, there must be the Baruch Shem Kivod. And now the question is, why? So I'm going to share with you the way it's explained in Hasidus and in Tanya. And also in Kabbalah, it talks about, but I learned it through Hasidus. So you should know that the book of Tanya is made up of five books. The first book has the 53 chapters, and it's called Lekute Amorim, a compilation of sayings. The second book is called Shar Hayichud Veha the gateway of unification and faith. Now, if you look what the Alter Rebbe writes right under the name of the book, before he starts explaining, he says that this part of the book is here to explain the Shema Yisrael and the Baruch Shem. So now let's talk about it. So, interesting you should know that according to Kabbalah, it's not just according to Kabbalah, we're taught in Judaism, but the, t the outcome is according to Kabbalah. In Judaism, you have what we call chilukve oisius. We can exchange letters one for another if they belong to the same categories. And there are very different ways to do it. One way, for example, is to divide the 22 Hebrew letters in half and fold it. So Aleph, the first letter, becomes tough, the last letter. Bet, the second letter, becomes Shin, the second to the last letter. And that's called At-Bash, Aleph, tough Bet, Shin. There are other ways to change letters, and that's the way the letters are divided into the pronunciation. There are lip letters, Bez, Pei. There are throat letters, Ches, Chaf. So there are different ways in Kabbalah in how we're allowed to, for whatever reasons, as Kabbalah explains, the levels of concealment, which we'll talk about in a moment, there is the different ways of exchanging letters. The lowest form of changing letters is numerology. If two words have the same, numeral, numeral, the same numerical value, we connect the two. But that is of the lowest form. There's all the higher forms. The highest form is when we don't change any letters. The letters are exactly the way it's supposed to be. Now, with that said, our sages tell us that the last word of the Shema, Echad, and the last word of the 
Baruch Shem, Vaed, are all exchange letters. Vaed is the word Echad in exchange letters. So much so that even the one letter that's not changed, which is the Dalit, right? You have Aleph Ches, Dalit. Vav Ayin, Dalit. So it goes ahead and it tells us that if you look in the Torah, the Dalit of Shema is written big. The Ayin of Shema and the Dalit of Echad are written big. And our sages tell us, one of the teachings here is, that Ayin and Dalit are connected. You connect them and you have the word Eid, which is a witness. And by saying the Shema, we're giving testimony that God is God and God created the world. In Kabbalah, it's connected to what I told you before. Remember I told you in the beginning that there's single digits, double digits, and hundreds. And that is emotion emanations, intellect emanations, infinite will. And each one has a different level of divinity. The higher, the higher the divinity. According to Kabbalah, you'll find in the Torah three types of letters. There are big letters, like the Ayin of Shema and the Dalit of Echad. There are tiny letters, like the Aleph of the word Vayikra, the first word in the book of Leviticus. And then there are the average letters. And according to Kabbalah, this is all three different levels of divinity and revelation. Thus, you now understand that the Dalit, the big Dalit from Echad, and the small Dalit from Vaed are two different letters. And thus, every letter of Echad is being exchanged to create the word Vaed. Now let's understand this. The word Echad is the ultimate proclamation of faith. And I want to share why. In Torah and in Judaism, monotheism does not only mean that there's one God and not many gods. So there's paganism and monotheism. No. In Judaism, that there's only one God goes without say. So what is the proclamation of hero Israel? God is our God. God is one. The answer is that everything is God and God is everything. That is the ultimate experience of faith. Now, I don't want to get too Kabbalistic here. I am. It's just that type of Torah portion, Ten Commandments and Shema. You're going to get Kabbalistic here. But I want to share with you in the most simplest terms. When God went to create the world, he didn't make a shopping list, go to Home Depot, buy water, buy fire, buy air, buy earth, and then start creating everything. So if that be the case, what is the material through which God created the world? In other words, the fact that God was the one that created it, okay. But my question here is, what did he create it from? And the answer is, that he created it from himself. God is the material of all existence. 
And thus Maimonides gives this incredible, incredible formula that says he is the knower, he is the known, he is the knowledge. Thus God knows everything, not because he knows everything, but because God knows himself. And everything is a piece of him. Now, from this perspective, we have the magnificent level of faith that not that I am the world and God created the world and the world needs God to live, but rather we have that there is nothing but God. Thus, when we look at in a, in a perspective of Judaism, in a perspective of faith, in a perspective of oneness, we stand in this unbelievable unity that how can I say there are two paradigms? There's me when I'm in shul, and then there's me when I'm in my office or on Wall Street. There's me who studies Torah, but then there's me who also studies science. And, and this whole double paradigm and how can I say that life does not allow for me to serve God when God is everything and everything is God? And I've shared with this with you before. The Kabbalistic formula of an atheist is a piece of God telling God that God doesn't exist. That is the paradigm of Hashem Echad. Not that there is one God who created me, but that everything is from God. God is everything and everything is God. And yet the magnificence is that God placed a one-way mirror in between the Ma'or, in between what we call creator and creation. Thus from God's vantage point, it's not a mirror. It's all a, a see-through glass. God is everything and everything is God. But from our perspective, what we're seeing is a mirror. And thus, I can't see that everything is God and God is everything. And thus, my grandfather of blessed memory taught me that the first letter of the Torah is a bet. A bet looks like this. And what it means is that we are only able to see and perceive what post-bet post of creation however what what goes on above creation and how in essence creation is only a filter through which the ultimate truth and oneness of god is shining and we don't see that because we see the impact of the filter that's where the faith comes in and that's why in our amida prayer we say, Modim We admit to God. We acknowledge. What do you mean we acknowledge that God is right? Because the verse says, Kel deot Hashem. God is a God of knowledges. Doesn't say dea, it says deot. Because there exist two paradigms that God created. One from this side of the Tzimtzum, which is the one-way mirror, and one from this side. And even though we can never truly embody 
in the most tangible, practical reality that God is everything and everything is God. Thus we say, we only see it differently. I'm going to explain what we see in a moment. We only see it differently, but you should know, even though we cannot perceive the higher, the echot, the oneness, you should know, we know what we cannot perceive is true. God is everything and everything is God. And there's nothing that exists which isn't a piece of God. That is the power of Shema Yisrael. And maybe we can say, maybe we can say that is the reason why the tradition evolved, that that is the last thing we say before we leave this world. Because at that moment, we are privy to the ultimate truth, that everything is nothing more than a glove on God's hand, and we're about to get past the glove into the hand at that moment of death. With that being said, now I shared with you that when things are written in the right letters, then that is the greatest, greatest revelation because the letters aren't hiding things. Rather, the letters are transparent to the thought. So the letters Aleph, Ches, Dalit, which make up the word Echad, is absolute transparency to the concept which we're saying here, which the Torah is transmitting, that God is everything and everything is God. Now, when you switch letters, so we're playing codes. Code means that the letters are deceiving. They're concealing what's hidden within it, and we have to figure out the code. Thus, in Kabbalah, the, the second verse, which ends with the word va'ed, which is really code letters for the word echad, means that this is a lower level of concealment in what it means, the faith that God is everything and everything is God. And allow me to explain. When we talk about Baruch Shem Kivod Machutol Olam Va'ed, that is called in Kabbalah Yehuda Tata'o, the lower unification. The Echad is the higher unification, and the Va'ed is the lower unification. What does that mean? What that means is that I cannot, I mean, to the point where it sounds idolatrous to me, to say, I am God. God is everything and everything is God. That means I am God. The table's God. The cup of water is God. Everything is God. God, 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 God. It, it's idolatrous for us to even say that because we don't have that transparency. However, I want you to know, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not going to get to the whole story. I'm just going to tell you the punchline of the story because the time is running here. I want you to know that there was a tzaddik that once took a glass famous tzaddik, he took a glass and he told someone who was being disrespectful. And he told, he took the glass and he made it disappear. And he told him, do you know what I just did? He said, no, I don't know how you made that disappear. He said, I'll tell you how I made it disappear. Because everything has a soul and a body. The soul is the higher name of God, the, the yud Hey vav Hey name. 
pronounced A-D-O-N-A-Y. The body of everything is the Elokeinu, name of God. When you know how to separate the two names, remove the soul from the body, it disappears. And the guy was like, you imagine what he was trembling. And then the tzaddik said, and if you want, I can do that to you. And the tzaddik immediately, immediately asked forgiveness. And the son of the tzaddik um, stood up for, the, for his friend, asking his father, please forgive him. And then, but I just want to share with you that story. I mean, not, this story is not just about the power of, of a Rebbe and a tzaddik. By the way, this wasn't a Rebbe of Chabad. Total different tzaddik who was having a dispute with a different tzaddik in the teaching of the Tov, And this guy was a chos from the other tzaddik and he was trying to stick up for his Rebbe in front of this Rebbe and this Rebbe didn't like that. And that was that story. But the point I'm trying to share with you is that the way we see things, there's a body and a soul. And the way we see it, the body is something. But the body is nothing without the soul. But it is something. In other words, how I perceive life is very simple. The world exists. It only exists because Hashem created it. And Hashem vivifies it. And Hashem sustains it. Were Hashem to stop, vivifying, sustaining, and creating, the world would disappear, like that glass. However, while God is sustaining it, the world is a world. And I don't say that the world is God and God is the world. I don't live on that level. That's too hard for me to understand. There's a difference in my life between the holiness of the shul, the holiness of my living room, and the holiness of the swimming pool outside. I can't say they're all the same. God is everything and everything is God. It doesn't work that way. The Mishnah says that there's 10 levels of Kedusha throughout the geography of the world. There are 10 different levels. And the definition of Kedusha is that God is more revealed in the Holy Temple, thus it's holier. And then he's less than that, but more revealed in the mountain, Mount Moriah, Mount Temple Mount, and Jerusalem, and Israel, and so forth and so on. So for me, I can't live with the echad. Echad is beyond me. I can only bow in Amida and say, I know that echad is right and true. But I can't absorb that. That is an encompassing power that I just know to be right. But I don't eat it. I don't digest it, and I can't live with it. Put things in perspective, if I may. To live with Echad is to live with the holiness and consciousness of Yom Kippur every day of your life. Imagine Monday having to live with the intensity, the awe of standing in front of God the way we feel on Yom Kippur when the Holy Ark is opened by Ni'ilah. I cannot live with that. I need a Shabbos. I need a Yom Tiv. And then I need a regular Monday. And I live with more Mondays than I live with Shabbatot and Yom Kippur's. So on Monday, my perception is, of course, God, everything needs God. But I am me. I exist only because God created me and returns my soul to me. But I am me. Thus, after Shema, 
has to come devoted. After Echad has to come voted. And so much so that Echad is only a crown upon voted. Voed is my head that is protected by a higher faith of Echad. But to try to live with Echad, that's, it's impossible. And thus, the sages were not happy with the people of Yericho. What, what are you doing? You're not recognizing your true capacity, your true place. You're trying to be Echads when that's not what's meant to be. Echads are standing in the throne room before God, seeing God every second. You can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't work. You're standing in front of the king. So what are you doing? You should know of Echad, but you should live with Va'ed, and thus you'll be able to have a healthy relationship with God, of loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, Whoa, this went long, so I want to wrap it up now. Let's connect it to Tisha B'Av. Everything has to be connected in the world of Chassidus. So I want to connect it with a teaching of our sages on what happened on Tisha B'Av. So there are two verses that argue with each other. One verse says that the two Keruvim, the Cherubim on top of the Holy Ark, faced each other like a friend to a friend, face to face. When you read the story of how it was built later in the times of King Solomon, it says that the wings were protruding through the curtain. It actually says it looked like the, the bosom of a woman. Now make up your mind. If the wings are protruding, they're facing this way. If they're facing this way, there are no wings that are pushing into the curtain. Wing tips pushing into the curtain. Thus, our sages say that even though the entire base and cherubim were made out of one solid piece of gold, nevertheless, you should know there was a miracle. When God was happy with the Jews, they faced each other, showing God facing the Jews like two lovers. When God was upset with the Jews, when we weren't behaving properly, they physically, miraculously turned outward. And there's a teaching how they would show the Jewish people to know that God is happy with us, is facing each other. Now, if there was ever a day where it should not have been facing each other, that should have been Tisha B'Av, where Hashem was so upset with us that he burnt down his own home and sent his children into exile. And nevertheless, our sages tell us, mind-boggling, that when the holy temple was destroyed, the cherubim were facing each other. Why? Connected to everything we were saying. Hashem was showing us in the worst moments that you should know on the echad level, everything I'm doing is I love you. And this is all part of the journey for us to reach the ultimate oneness with Hashem. So on the void level, my house is burning down. But on the echad level, what's hidden in the Holy of Holies, you should know that we are one. 
And thus you can say that God burnt down his house, but not his home. Because on the Echad level, Hashem is with us. On the Echad level, we still are in God's home, but not in his house. And may it be speedily in our days, before this Tisha B'Av, that the Echad and the Vo'ed should align itself. And we shouldn't have to know what's hidden in the Holy of Holies that God loves us. But on the outside, external, naked human eye, we see anger. We see punishment. We see exile. But rather, our naked eye should see the ultimate truth. And we should have the Besad Migdash. We should be together with Hashem in Eretz Yisrael, Yerushalayim, in Harabayas, in the Besad Migdash, from Heida, Biyameinu, Mamash. And everyone's unmuted. Whoever wants to share anything. Thank you, Rabbi. You're very, very welcome. I'm going to listen to the recording again on, on Tisha B'Av afternoon. Okay. I, I just want to share with you, and I want to close it up and make, you know, with a, a practical thing. The practical thing is that in our hearts, when we want to make a resolution, we jump to Echad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the whole Tilim every day. I'm going to learn the whole Torah. I'm going to give hundreds of dollars of charity. And then you realize what the sages told the people, Yericho, really, you can't, it's not sustainable. So you should know that when your heart is burning with Echad, make it sustainable. Make it sustainable. Don't say the whole Tilim, say one chapter Tilim. Don't learn the whole Torah, learn a little bit every day. Don't give a million dollars, give $18. That's really the practicality of knowing that from Echad, we sustain our void. Absolutely, you're right on target. Yeah. Okay, my dear friend, Zayge Zint, and if Chazmishal Mashiach doesn't come, have an easy fast, and Mechemi will come, and we'll have a huge Kabrengi. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.